Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 48. It's a psalm I never preached on. I was thinking this morning, I need to do a series on texts I've never preached on. It'd just be fun for me. I don't know if it'd be fun for y'all, but uh, I thought uh, maybe I need to do a series on psalms I've never preached. But it was one of my goals early on in my ministry to preach on all of 150 psalms, and I'm I'm over halfway there, I guess, so if you'll hang with me for a while, we, we might get through all 150. But uh, here's one I've never preached. Here's one I think we need to hear more, this theme. It's throughout the scriptures. It's a psalm about the beauty of God's church and why she is so beautiful. Um, you know, it, it's Valentine's week. And uh, so it's easy for us to think about why perhaps our Valentine is, is so beautiful, whether it's a he or a she. We think, well, it's, we're soulmates, we, we have things in common, same vision, same goals, uh, same agendas that makes this Valentine beautiful for me, uh, adorable, uh, strong. Um, There's just so many things we could just go on and on and on. Look at it from heaven's perspective. If Christ says to his church, you're my valentine, what does he see in his church that is beautiful, that's significant? Um, what does he declare to us about her beauty? And I think we're going to see some of that here. Um, let me create a category for you that I think uh, we're missing. Have, have you ever watched, you know, the news, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock news, and at some point you say, why can't they just give us some good news? And sometimes we decry the, the news reports because it always seems to be so gloomy. Uh, but think about their assignment. They've created categories for news. And as I've thought about, if I work for a, a news channel, you know, my assignment every day, I got to get up and give you a report. So I would have a category. My category might be to give you the ambulance report or the police report or the fire report. You know, there's certain reporters, they wake up and that's, they just scan that stuff. Is there something here that's newsworthy? Police did, fire department did, the ambulance did. I need to share that. So that's category that we call news, and that's usually not real good. And then they, they move to the next category. They look at national or international or global news that needs to be repeated, thinking maybe you didn't watch a national or international uh, channel, so the local channel's got to give you a summary of that, another category. And then, of course, you always have the weather category, and that's either good or bad, depending on how much you like weather. And then they got the sports category, and that's either good or bad, depending on whether your team's winning, or they're even talking about a sport you care about. So you've got these categories. Now, when you look at those categories, that's their assignment. They wake up every day to fill the slots and then give you a report. Where's the category for good news that's been talked about? And they say, well, we try to do that. How do we do that? The reason they don't do it successfully is because they don't really have a category for that. Where is the good news category? And I, I propose to you that that good news category is God and his church. And if they were to every day say, this is our God and church report, 
where they look in to what's going on with God and his people. Then you have a category of good news, because that's where the good stuff is. That's where you see heaven come down, invade earth, and bring earth up to heaven. And it's always a wonderful story. And we, because we don't have that category, we don't sometimes even think we, that category is getting squished out. Back when I used to read the paper, you know, that was, what, 20 years ago before Internet, you know, I used to just scan through, and I, I always wanted a page that said God. You know, why can't we just say, behold God, and give, the, give a report? There's so much that's, that's good there. Why do we get in this, this swap of life and miss the good stuff? And I think, you know, just imagine, uh, you know, flying over the world in a, at a low altitude, one of these small planes, and, and you're searching for the good stuff. And literally, you will find the people of God in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And if you could fly over and look down into those local assemblies, and you see God at work changing lives, you see, that's, that's the good stuff. And a lot of times we fly over and we're missing that that is actually going on and happening. It's so awesome, it's so significant, and I'm afraid at times we, we don't even create that category. Why is it so significant? Why is it so wonderful? To, to me, that I try to think, what's, what's an illustration of this? I don't know if you've ever, you know, stepped off the plane onto a Caribbean island. You say, whoa, life just changed for me. You know, I just went from all the busyness and hectic schedule of life to a time, maybe it's a short time, but it's a time of peace and rest. To me, it's like going into the bathroom and locking the door. Do you ever do that? You know, you lock the door and you create a bath for yourself. And it doesn't matter what happens, you're going to get that bath. And it's just a moment of, ah, of rest, of peace. And really, when you look into churches that are designed by God, you get that sense that here's a place where people are at rest and at peace. Why? Because their, their follower is the prince of peace. They worship the God of all goodness. Christ cannot help but show up with goodness and peace and love and joy. The fruit of His Spirit is all of those things, and they are in the body of Christ. I'm afraid we get so tied up in this world that at times we miss that whole category and we don't even see that. Um, there have been plenty of people who have tried to study uh, the greatness of America. And when you, and this is probably going to come up, in the next two or three generations, as, as a big study, if America uh, doesn't uh, grow and continues to be on this plateaued or maybe downward spiral, spiral in spiritual things. But as you study the um, greatness of America, people from other countries who have come here, so what makes America great? 
and people suppose certain things, is it because of your constitution? Is it because of your Congress? Is it because um, of your natural resources? You have so many natural resources, oil reserves and energy uh, products. Is it because of your beaches? Is it because of your uh, great mountains and uh, geography? I mean, you can study all these things. People say, you know, I'm not real sure what makes America great until there are people who say, but wait, wait, go look into their churches and hear the word of God preach to these people week after week and see their sacraments, see what they give their lives to, see what they stand for, see what they will die for. Understand that this is the nation that freed the church to be the church. And if we ever become a nation that ceases to allow the church that freedom, that ceases to allow the church to be word-centered and God-centered and to influence its people, then we will lose the core of our greatness as a nation. But that category is slowly being squeezed. And that's why when I, when I read Psalm 48, I said, we've got to get this. This is not one of those messages that just sets you on fire, but... I hope it's one of these messages that makes you think, yeah, there, there's something that's a core value and greatly significant here when you stop to consider the beauty of the church and what the church is designed by God to do. So I want us to think through that. Now realize when you read Psalm 48 with me and when you look at passages about the church, God uses a lot of poetic language and phrases that implies church, okay? Languages like the mountain of God, the city of God, the river of God, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. There's lots of terminology. When you look at it, you say, oh, he, he's, he's talking about the church. And so you just understand that, and it, it perhaps applies more easily um, in your situation. Uh, look at Psalm 46, verse 4. I love, I love this psalm. I'm, I know I told you Psalm 48, but let's do Psalm 46 real quick. Verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. There's an example where the church is described as a city, and God is described as the river in the midst of the city. I just want you to just begin to get the language. God says, the the, the the city is great because God is in its midst, like a river always giving it life um, and existence. Look over at Psalm 87, uh, verse 2 and 3. Psalm 87, 2 and 3. The, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. You see, he's not talking about literal gates. It's not like he likes the door. He's like, but he's talking about the entrance into his church. More, he loves, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. When you just sang that song that says God is preparing for us a city, did you get excited about 
buildings and curbs and gutters and utilities? No, you're thinking city is the people of God. It's the same thing here. He's not talking about so much gates and places. He's talking about people. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. This, this dwelling place of Jacob, that's the dwelling place where the church is at. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. You're the people there of God. Uh, look down to verse 5, but it, 5, 6, and 7. But of Zion it shall be said, so again, of the church it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples, the one who was born there. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flute, shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. I just want to share that as some examples of the church. God uses language, and when you see that language, think church, and perhaps that will help you. We get the same kind of language in Psalm 48. I want you to see the greatness of the church is in three things. The church is great because of her stronghold, because of her salvation, and because of her story. And you get that very quickly in the first three verses of Psalm 48. Let me read them. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, his Mount Zion is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. In other words, the greatness of the church is in her God. When we come into the church, the reason the church is so great is because our God is so great. If we really do church right, if we really are church right, then we're here to talk more about God than about ourselves. Yes, we are significant and wonderful because God is in our midst and God is our stronghold. And that's, that's the beginning of this. Look at the church. She is wonderful, but the reason she's wonderful, the reason the mountain is so holy, the reason it's so elevated, the reason it's so significant is because its foundation is God. He is her strength and all that uh, is necessary to hold her up. Um, it's like going to the Biltmore House. You know, you take that tour. You can't take that tour of the Biltmore House and not stop to think, who built this? Who, who first lived here? I mean, the house is significant only because of a family called the Vanderbilts that said, you know, we want to build this place and develop this place. You can't see this place is significant without thinking of the people in the same same way we, we can't see the significance of the church without thinking of who is its builder who is who is its foundation who who put it here and that's the way the psalmist begins by th getting us to think about that you know if you go back to tour your college or university you do the same thing it's not you can see the, the buildings maybe have expanded and the ministry of education there has grown but you can't help but to stop and think about professors and teachers and friends and teams and stuff you were on when you were there. It's the people that made up that place. It's the same is true of us, the church. We are significant because God is in our midst, and that's seen every 
every day. Um, and notice how it's grown and the significance of it. Let me show you the contrast between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Think again about the strength of our church. Hebrews 12 Beginning at verse eight, nine, eight, 18, there's this contrast. Zion is referred to as Old Testament church. Excuse me, Sinai. And Zion is referred to as the New Testament church. So, verse 18. For you have not come to, to a mountain, speaking of Sinai, that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. So it's describing the church when they got the Ten Commandments on Mount Zion. Why can't I say that this morning? Sinai. There we go. Uh, you know, when they came, said you can't come. Don't come. God said, don't come near here. Anybody who comes up this mountain, even touches it, I'm going to kill them. I mean, and the earth quaked, and the uh, heaven came down. I mean, that's the description we're getting. Verse 19. And to the blast of a trumpet, to the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Can you imagine hearing God speak and you're saying, Whoo, too loud. You know, stop. Too much. That was the Old Testament people of God. They were afraid at times of hearing God speak. Because when they heard it, when they heard God speak to Moses, it was too much for them. They begged for some quiet. Verse 20. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But that's not us. That was them. Verse 22, it changes. But but you, us, you have come to Mount Sion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Think about what makes us significant, what makes us strong. In this passage, you begin to see this you Old Testament church, you, you saw your strength in this mighty God, but New Testament church, I want you to see your strength in this one who makes you righteous, this one who makes you literally perfect. Because you come to him, to Jesus Christ, he is the mediator of your church, this new covenant, and you're sprinkled with his blood, and that blood speaks Better than the blood of Abel. And what's the illustration there? You remember when Cain killed Abel? And Abel says, what, what, what do I do? You know, how do you, nobody was around. How do you know I did something? And God says, do you know, can you not hear Abel's blood? He said, what? You don't hear that? Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. Murderer, murderer. Murder! You, you don't hear that? Well, that's what it's saying. God says, I hear it. I don't know why you don't, you, you, you're missing this. Is it, 
if you can hear Abel's blood, just imagine hearing Jesus' blood. Because Jesus has stood in the courtroom of heaven for you and me. And God says, why should I let them in heaven? Why should I sanctify them? Why should I perfect them? Why should I make them the children of God? And Jesus says, because look at them. My blood has been spilt. They have been sprinkled with my blood. I have purchased them with my life. I stand to plead for them before you, O God. You must receive them. I have bought them. And the joy it will be to stand before God and say, look at my head, sprinkled with blood. Can you not hear it? Can you not hear God's, oh, I see that, come on. Oh, see, come on. I see that, come on. What makes us worthy? What makes us strong? What makes us significant? It's our God is with us to purchase us, to redeem us, to bring us to himself, to sprinkle us with his blood, to mark us out as his. So significant. And that's what Psalm 48 is, is reminding us. What makes us strong, what makes us significant, is that God is with us. And he redeems us, and he takes us to himself. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like that old adage, you know, behind every great man's a great woman, or behind whoever. It's like there is some support. There's a support system. Nobody gets to where they are on their own. Someone must be a foundational, pivotal person that gets them there. Christ is that for us. He is our support, our strength, our stronghold, our foundation. We don't get to be the significant church we are without Christ. Now, interesting phrase, Psalm 48, verse 2. Did you catch it? Beautiful is this church, beautiful in elevation. This next phrase, the joy of the whole earth. Do you have that category? Good news that the whole earth comes to the church for its joy, really. Who's been teaching this? We think the joy is out there in the world. We think the joy is in the pleasures of sin. And God says, no, no, no. The joy of the whole earth is found in the church. Fruit of the Spirit is joy. The world always has a cheap imitation. But the world, when it looks, if it can fly over and look into the church, the world would start to see, how is it you have such joy? Again, the answer is because Christ is our stronghold. We're on solid ground. We know where we're going. We know our sins are paid for. We know we are secure. We are happy, and we know it. Because life is significant in Christ. We have what they want. We are the envy of the whole world. We are the joy of the whole world. We have at our right hand Christ, and in his presence is the fullness of joy. And in his path are pleasures forevermore. It's those who are on the way and path of God that are constantly bursting forth into joy. When the world sees that, it's like, wow, how do I get some of that? I'm afraid at times Satan deceives us and we get squeezed into the mold of the world and we think the pleasures of sin are greater than what we have in Christ. It's never true. 
God declares the joy of the world is the church. If you take the church out of the world, you will rob it of its joy. They depend upon us for the security of morality and standard and foundation and significance and all that they have. Without us, the world crumbles. But we often miss that significant place that God has given the world by giving it the church. Well, see this great stronghold of the church. Second, Psalm 48 moves to her great salvation. Verse 4, I know verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, uh, just a, a lengthy illustration of redemption. Verse 4, for lo, the kings assembled themselves. I don't know when that was, but at some point, there's, this is a real illustration. Kings got together, assembled themselves. They passed by together, verse 5. They saw it, and then they were amazed. So you're getting this imagery of kings coming together and seeing the church the people of God, and just literally being amazed. Then they were terrified, and they fled in alarm. They had a panic attack, verse 6. Panic seized them. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. Like, they realize there's such power and strength that it'll destroy them. Verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Well, you know, none of the commentaries I looked at said, well, can, can we tie down exactly when this was? A lot of them like the time where kings assembled to come against Hezekiah, and Hezekiah took the, the, uh, the boast of the kings. If you remember that time, uh, king said, you know, don't assume you're going to get away. We, we, we've slaughtered so many nations, we're going to slaughter Jerusalem. And Hezekiah said, let me take that to, to God. And so he lays it before God and says, God, this is what they're saying. God said, I got this. And the next morning, the kings woke up, and I, I forget the exact numbers, like 185,000 soldiers had died in the night. So they wake up and they look around, what's happening? A panic attack. And they, they hit it out of there. It's just amazed. Who... Who is a people like this who has a God who fights for them? And that's kind of the imagery we're getting here, is that when, when kings of nations really look at the church, they're amazed. Because this is a people that gets redeemed, that gets saved, that gets delivered, and they don't do anything for it. That's amazing. Who, who has a God like that? So that's, that's the message here, that, that we don't only have a stronghold, a great stronghold, we have a great salvation. God is fighting for us, and he's fighting for his church. There was a time in the Old Testament he's fighting for a national church. In the New Testament, we see he's fighting for an international church. Let me show you a little of that transition. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and... And see the significance of this church that Christ is fighting for, uh, international. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 17. He came and he preached. You know Christ was a preacher, right? This is him. He came, Christ came, and he preached. Peace to you who were far 
away. And peace to those who were near. He's not talking about geography. He's talking about um, as the people of God. We started with a national church, the Jew. They were near to God's heart. He chose them first. So those were the ones who were near. And the ones who were far off, far away, are those outside Jerusalem, outside the Jewish nation. It says when Christ showed up, he started preaching, and the emphasis in Ephesians is always to the far away first, the near second. But he, he started preaching to those who are far away, outside the city, outside what they thought was the church. And his message was peace. I'm not just bringing peace to the Jew, I'm bringing peace to you, to you and uh, your people. Uh, verse 18, for the, through him we, were bo we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, so not just the Jew says, well, we're special and we get to go to heaven. Is it? No, we both have access, the Jew and the Gentile, to the Father through the Spirit. We're born again of the Spirit and we have access. Verse 19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Stop and think, what's the results of Christ's preaching? What was the fruit of his preaching, according to that verse? He says, Christ preached, and when he preached, Jewish people became part of the church, God's household. And non-Jewish people, those who are far off, also became part of the same household. We were, in Christ's preaching, united together. But the results of Christ's preaching was church membership. We were united together as church, one household of God. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So they switches to this illustration that we're the new temple we're the new church we're like a building and whether you were far off as a gentile or whether you were near as a jew you were being built together into this one temple of the lord one church one household that's who we are we're the people of god and i have people say well you know i'm a little disillusioned by the church i I'm a Christian, but I just don't go anywhere. And if I do go somewhere, I, I'm not sure I, I just ever want to be a part anymore. I, I, don't, I don't want to join the church. I'm thinking, what? What Bible are you reading? What was the fruit of Christ preaching? What was the result of his preaching? His, would Christ preach people join the church? We have this deception that Satan has filled America with, and it's this deception that autonomy is our idol, that's our God, that we are individually powerful and can determine our own lot in life. Lie. We are not autonomous. We were far off, and we've been brought together with the believing Jews to form one church. Who gets to heaven as an individual? I can't find that verse in my Bible. We get to heaven as the church. 
Jesus asked Peter, he said, Peter, who do they say I am? He says, well, you're the Christ. He says, that's not what they say, but that's what I say. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. He says, right. And upon you, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18, right? So you got that. Christ is the owner of the church. He says, I will build whose church? My church. What will he do with it? He will construct it. Here in Ephesians 2, he's constructing us, one stone upon another, building us as his church. He didn't come to save individuals. He came to save the church. He said, I came, I die. You know, I was talking to, to, to a group of kids, said, do you care about the church? I don't know. Why should I care about church? Because Christ died for the church. How can you say you love Christ and not care about the church? He preached for the church. He died for the church. He owns the church. He builds the church. He makes us the church. It's all of this redemption is to build a church in heaven. This, this mindset that we don't need to care about the church. Like, Satan is trying to convince us to remove that category and just worship ourselves. We get to do what we want to do, and we'll even tell God he has to save us. We're individuals who are worthy. It's foreign from the Scripture. The beauty of the church is in its stronghold and in its salvation. We are saved sinners and been brought through the preaching of God's word to become vessels in his church uh, look at first Peter 2 just to push this illustration hopefully into your hearts and minds to think more first Peter chapter 2 a better description of stone upon stone 1 Peter 2, verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. I mean, you just think that... We are the church, and we get to gather one stone upon another. You're a stone, I'm a stone, we're living stones, Christ is a living stone, but we are the temple of God, and he's using this illustration in the Old Testament. You didn't do church without offering sacrifice, but now we come together, and we are the church, and we come one stone upon another to offer a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of giving our lives, giving our hearts, our minds, through Christ. That's what we do. You know, we are the church. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who gets to do that? Who proclaims the excellencies of God? Anyone who's been called out of darkness into light and made a living stone. You get to do that as the church. Why do you get to talk about God? Because I'm, I'm his. I'm, I'm his church. I'm his body. I'm a, a living stone in his house. Verse 10, for you were once not that. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Every believer has a testimony as 
a church, as part of the church. My testimony is that God took me who was far away and he's brought me into his household, has established me as part of his church. The old timers used to say there's absolutely no salvation that's possible apart from the church. This is what they're talking about. God doesn't redeem anybody's church. And for us to be living in a culture that doesn't value the church, like, whoa. The church is beautiful because God is in her midst and God is saving only the church and building heaven only for the church. So yes, salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, but it's for the sons and daughters of God alone. For the household of God, for the church of God. And there's no salvation apart from that. We need to, we need to catch how great a salvation we do indeed have. Well, go back to Psalm uh, 48. We're great because of our stronghold, our salvation, and then because of our story. Verses 9 through 14. It says, We have thought on you, on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple, or in the midst of your church. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of the righteousness. Stop and think about it. God's praise is to the ends of the earth. Think nations. It's not just for one people. It's, it's, it's for every nation, tribe, and tongue, God's praise. Verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her counter towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Now stop and think about what he's saying. He said, come into the church. You see her stronghold. You see her salvation. But look at her story. And he gives this lengthy illustration. He says, when you come in and you start to sing her praise, take a look around. Like, uh, walk around Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Look at her palaces. Look at her ramparts. What's he saying there? Take the tour. And when you take the tour, stop. Look at that tower. And get dad and mom to tell the kids, tell the next generation, why that tower? What happened there? And dad and mom start saying, well, at that tower, these enemies came against the people of God, and God just, just killed them in their sleep. And God built his church like, wow. And then go over to the palaces. And tell what God did there. And go to the ramparts and tell what God there. And just you just start getting this tour. And the reason for the tour is to tell the next generation. Which always confused me back in the days when churches were going through worship wars. I say, guys, it, it's never about our preferences. Preference wars, this is what I like, this is what I like to sing, this is what I like to do, this is like how I like to dress. See, it's never about that. It's about what can we do to tell it to the kids, to tell it to the next generation. So we don't, we don't design or package services because that's what we like. But we package them in such a way that we can tell the next generation. Because that's God's design, is we have a story to tell to the nations. But it starts by telling our kids. 
And we must tell them how great a salvation we have, how great a God we have, so that they begin to see it. You know, there's a commercial on TV. My family knows I hate it. I just hate it, I hate it, hate it. I fast-forward through it. I cut off the TV. I don't know why I hate it so much. I've been trying to think, what's my issue? But it's farmer's insurance. Have you ever seen that commercial? I hate it. Maybe it's because it's not my insurance company. Okay? But one of the reasons I hate it is it's just on way too frequent. Number two, I know I hate it because it implies a tremendous amount of arrogance. And the arrogance is based on empirical knowledge only. And the hook is... Um, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. You know, we, we've seen everything, so we can cover just about anything. I mean, it's so arrogant. You know, I just hate it. But here's the good part. Though I hate them, there's something they're doing that's good, and that they always show you a picture. I said, look at that. You don't want to know what happened then? And there's just terrible accident. And because of that, we've learned how to to take care of something. And that's what Psalm 48 is doing. It says, let me just take you around and show you the palaces. Let me show you the, the tower. Let me show you, show you this. And from that, I want you to get a message that our God is great. And he's building a great church. And we have a great story to tell. We tell the excellencies of him to the next generation. And I hope that's your passion and vision that you're always seeking to reach your kids with the greatness of God's church. Great because of him, because of his salvation, and because of the message he wants to communicate to them. That's the outline of Psalm 48. That's what he's trying to teach us. It's not about us. It's about God. Well... I've run out of time, I know, but let me just stop and apply it a little bit. Um, why is New Covenant Church great? Catch, catch, catch the immediate application. It's not great. Why is any local church great? It's not great because of its preacher. It's not great because of its staff. It's not great because of its program. It's not great because of its buildings. It's not great because it's debt-free. Why are we great? We're great because of our God. And we're great because he has saved and redeemed us. There are, there are places where they don't have salvation and redemption. And a worship of the true God. That's what makes us great. That's our message. Week after week after week. It's God-centered. It's Word-centered. And that's the influence and the greatness and the strength of the church. Now, look again at verse 9, and I'll stop with this. Verse 9 reads, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. Stop right there. Have you? Let's take out temple and put in church. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your church. Really? Have you? Have you thought about the loving kindness of God in the midst of his church? Do you have that category? Don't raise kids who don't have that category. Unbelievable statistic that 70% of church kids go to college and don't come back to church. That's telling me they don't have this category. That in the home, week after week after week, you as a family have been thinking about the loving kindness of the Lord in the midst of his church. 
The psalmist says, we have been thinking about the loving kindness of the Lord in the midst of his church. And when you really stop to think about that, what does that do? Does it increase your loyalty? Does it increase your message, your passion to tell the next generation? Does it increase your stewardship? Does it increase your giving? Does it increase your hope? Does it increase your love? I mean, it should be doing something. That's the application. When you stop to think about the love, the beauty and love of God in the beauty and love of His church, it dramatically changes how we think and how we live and how we raise the next generation for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beauty of your church because we can't stop and think about her beauty without seeing you and your excellence, your greatness, your power. Lord, thank you for the source of all wisdom and knowledge and joy and fullness, for the hope of eternity in your arms and under your care. Father, forgive us for raising kids who have not grown to love and know this category of the loving kindness of God in the midst of his church. Father, help us to think on this often and may it change us and may it reach the next generation with the glory of our God. Have mercy on us, O Lord.